can have a seat, you can turn to Psalm 145. This morning we will be talking about worship. We're dividing the worship set up so that after we talk about worship, we can do some worship again together. So that's why we're doing a little bit of an unusual order of worship this morning. Well, my relationship with my wife, Julie, didn't begin well. We had known each other as friends for a few months. We co-led a ministry at a church up in Dallas, but it didn't take me long to figure out that I wanted more than friendship with Julie, and so I decided I was going to ask her out for a date, but at that point in my life, I had asked a girl out on a date three times, and so I didn't have a lot of experience, didn't really know what I was doing, so I, I prepared to ask her out. I prayed for a long time, and I strategized with my roommates. Guys, you know what that's like. We're trying to figure out when and how and all that. Kind of counting on our roommates to not let us down, um, and I, I talked on the phone with mutual friends of ours, like girls who knew us both, so I could get their advice, and, and I even got my pastor's permission because we both worked in his church, and so I was, I was getting all the help I could get, so I prepared really well to ask Julie Juliet, and then I totally blew it because I called her up on the phone and I said, Julie, would you like to get coffee with me? Instead of asking, would you like to go out on a date? I, I asked if she'd like to go to coffee, but we co-led a ministry together. So she assumed that I meant, do you want to meet at Starbucks and plan out the next month of ministry? Because that's the kind of thing that we did all the time. And so she says yes, and she prepares accordingly until the day of the date, she's talking to one of our mutual friends, one of the girls that I called for advice. And, and that girl said, so I hear you have a date with Blake tonight, to which Julie responded, I do? Guys, don't ever put a girl you're interested in in that position. It's really awkward for them. I confused Julie. I blew it asking her out because I wasn't clear with my words. I assumed she knew what I meant by let's get coffee, but she didn't. I was haphazard with my words, and it created a lot of confusion. Well, we are guilty of doing that same thing in the church all the time. We're careless with our words. We assume that people understand what we're talking about, and yet our failure to clarify things creates confusion and misunderstanding. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time clarifying a commonly misunderstood word that you hear all the time at church and in Christian circles. We're going to talk about worship. This, this word that all of us are expected to know, because we talk about it all the time, we're going to talk about worship and we're going to try to understand what is this thing called worship? How do you worship? What does it mean? We're going to talk about worship. Now, why are we doing it today? Well, because next week we're going to jump back into 1 Corinthians. And the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11 all the way to the end, chapter 16, it's all about what we do together right here in this worship service. And so we figured let's pause for a week and just talk about that word, worship. Make sure that we all understand what it means and how we do it together. So let's talk about worship. What is worship? Well, if somebody asked you what is worship, best place you could go, at least that I know of in the Bible, is Psalm 145. Psalm 145 was written by King David, a guy who knew how to worship. He wrote most of the Psalms, which are hymns or songs of worship. And in Psalm 145, he talks about worship and he uses a whole lot of words and phrases to describe it. So you get a pretty good sense of of what all worship means. So look with me, Psalm 145, starting in verse 1. Everything we're going to read is about worship. 
says, starting in verse one, I will extol you, my God, O king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. And we'll pause there. If, if you go back and, and you took a pencil and underlined, or a pen and underlined, every verb that, that we read, then you would begin to get a sense of, of what this thing called worship is. So look at back, at back at verse one, the verb extol. What does it mean to extol? Well, extol means to lift up, literally. It means to hold something up in the air. So you're holding up a, a person or an object so that everybody can see how great they are. You're exalting them in the sight of everyone else. Next verb, bless. To bless your name. In, in the Bible, name, it means who you are, your attributes, your actions. To bless means to give thanks. So, so they are giving thanks for who God is and what God has done. Verse two, the verb praise. You hear that all the time. And in Hebrew, it's halal, and it's, it's the word that we get hallelujah from. When you're saying hallelujah, you're saying praise God. Declare how great God is. Lift God up. Uh, Verse four, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. To declare is, is to speak or to communicate to other people how wonderful God is. Next uh, verb in verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Meditate isn't, isn't to speak, it's what goes on up here in your mind. So meditate, it has to do with remembering, thinking to yourself about how good God is, how good he's been to you. Verses six and seven, men shall speak and tell and utter and shout joyfully about who God is. This is telling each other about how wonderful and awesome God is. Verse 10, all your work shall give thanks to you. So expressing our gratitude for who God is and what he's done. Verse 12, to, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts. This is declaring not to one another but to the world at large how good and great God is. A whole lot of different verbs that that David uses to describe this thing thing called worship. And and if you add all of those together, you end up with a a simple but very big definition of worship. At its most simple heart of the matter, worship is about declaring the great worth of God. That's biblical worship. We we declare or, or proclaim how good and powerful and wonderful God is, how great his works are. That's what it means. We're declaring the great worth of God. Now, that's actually really easy to see if you look at just the English word worship. 400 years ago, it wasn't worship. It was worth-ship. 
It meant to declare the worth of an object or a person. You're describing how valuable they are to you. That's the idea of worship. We're declaring how valuable, how, how worthwhile God is to us. So worship at its simplest, at its heart, is simply to declare, to proclaim the great worth of God. And as we saw in Psalm 145, we're declaring the great worth of God to God, to ourselves, and to one another. Worship, biblical worship, it goes up, in, and out. It goes up. It starts with God. We declare to God himself how good he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is. This is praise. This is thanksgiving. We're speaking to God how wonderful he is. Uh, Second, it goes in. It goes into us. We're telling ourselves, we're reminding ourselves how wonderful God is, how much he loves us, how good he's been to us. And finally, worship goes out. It goes out to other believers. It goes out to the world at large. We are declaring, we are speaking, we are telling about the wondrous ways of God. So worship, it's up, in, and out. It's offered to God, to ourselves, and to one another. We're declaring the great worth of God. But how do you actually do that? Practically speaking, what does worship look like? Well, if you ask most people, what does it look like to worship? They would assume we're talking about singing, what we did a few minutes ago. That's what most people think. Come together at church, or go to breakaway, and you sing, and that's worship. And, and biblically speaking, that is a big part of worship. It's an important part of worship, but that is not all that worship is biblically. If you read the book of Psalms, which is all about worship, not just Psalm 145, but the whole thing, and and you add up everything that it says about worship, you'll see verbs like sing, shout, speak, tell, proclaim, rejoice, exalt, give thanks, praise, be glad, call upon, come near, bow down, kneel, bring an offering, serve, remember, meditate. Whole lot of different verbs. Some are verbs of thought. Worship can happen just right up here as you meditate or remember about how good God is. Some are verbs of of speaking. You tell other people truths about God. Some are verbs about singing. You sing songs and hymns together about God. And some are verbs about activity. You are bowing, serving, making an offering to God. So practically speaking, what is worship? Well, well, worship is declaring the great worth of God to God, to ourselves, and to one another in thought, word, song, or deed. In anything, in other words. Anything that you do, Think, say, or sing that declares to God, to yourself, to other people, how great he is. That counts as worship. So when we gathered a few minutes ago and we were singing a song together, that was worship. But when you're in your car listening to praise music on your way to school or work, if you're thinking about the words, if you're engaged in the music, that's worship too. And when you're reading your Bible, let's say you're reading one of the Psalms, if you're, if you're offering that Psalm to God, if you're saying to God, God, I'm, I'm glad this is true about you, that is worship as well. When you gather with your roommates and you talk about the good things God did for you today, that is worship. When, when you reach out to help a, a neighbor or a friend who is in need and you do it because you love Jesus, that is worship. When you go to work, if you do it to God, your work counts as worship. It's a great thing about going to class or going to work. You can make that time worship. 
And here's how you do it. Here's one of my favorite prayers that, that somebody has written down. It can be really helpful to read over prayers that, that other great people in the past have written. My, one of my favorites was written by a French monk back in the 17th century, a guy named Brother Lawrence. He worked in a kitchen in the monastery, so not, not a real big job. He didn't teach people. He didn't lead the monastery. He just worked in the kitchen, cleaning and cooking. But every day on his way to the kitchen, here's what he prayed. Oh my God, you are always with me. Since I must now, in obedience to your will from me, apply my mind to my day's work, grant me the grace I shall need to continue through it in your presence. Help me to do this work to your glory. Receive it as a spiritual offering and let my desire be only to please you. That's worship. That sanctified his work in the kitchen and it turned it into worship because he offered his work to God as a sacrifice. He did his work well. He worked hard in the kitchen. He wasn't slacking off. He did his work well, and he did it with an attitude of joy and thankfulness. Thank you, God, for this job that I get to do. Let it be an offering to you that turned his work into worship. I gave my brother a plaque with that prayer. He's a a lawyer, and he got really tired of practicing law all day, and I gave it to him to remind him. Being a lawyer can be worship. If you come to your job and offer to the Lord as an offering to declare how worthy he is, it is worship. So when you add all that up, you see that anything and everything in your life, a thought, a word, a song, an activity, can be worship if you are giving it to God to declare how worthy he is. If you are using that thought, that that word, that song, that activity declared to God, to yourself, to other people, how worthy he is, then you have sanctified it and turned it into worship. So worship is so much more than just singing songs. Worship is anything we do to declare how worthy God is to God, to ourselves, and to one another. With that definition of worship, now I want to take a little bit of time to to clear up some common misconceptions about worship. I want to help correct some common errors in, in thinking when we approach this subject of worship. The first thing that I want to clear up is that worship is not always joyful. Biblical worship is not always happy. You wouldn't know that if you turn on KSBJ. If you turn on Christian radio, you, you turn on Christian music, and what you hear is a lot of happy people. A lot of happy people expressing joy and and thanks to God. They're rejoicing. They're passionate. They're totally into it. They're so excited. That is sometimes what you will find in the Bible. Other times you, you will find this. Psalm 55, David, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. I'm just waiting for the Chris Tomlin song about horror overwhelming me. (laughs) No one's going to write that because we won't buy it. That's not what we want to listen to with Christian music. But that is worship. You look biblically at the emotions that, that come into worship and you will see a whole range of different emotions that people had as they approached the Lord in worship. Sometimes it is joy and, and rejoicing and excitement and delight. Other times, though, it's, it's sadness 
and despair and depression and even anger. Did you know you can be angry at God and still worship biblically? And sometimes it's over here and it's just totally distraction. It's just distraction and apathy and you're not engaged in it at all. And yet in the midst of all of those different emotions, people worship God. Because biblical worship is not about a particular emotional state. It is about the choice to declare to God how great he is no matter how you feel at the moment. For me, over the course of my life, I've felt every different emotion in the midst of worship. Remember back in in high school, my youth group, we hopped in a big 15-passenger van and we drove to Enchanted Rock out in the hill country and we climbed it uh, in in dusk and and we're laying on top of it as the sun set and we looked up at the stars and we sang a cappella hymns and that was one of the most joyful moments of my life. That's the most joyful worship I've ever had. But then I remember about six years ago sitting here with you worshiping and singing about the faithfulness of God while Julie and I were going through infertility. And I didn't feel joy. I felt anger in the midst of that. You're singing about the faithfulness of God. He won't give us what we so desperately desire. I just felt anger in the midst of that. Then a couple years later, God gives us Luke and Gracie and we're singing about the love of God. And I feel joy. I feel thankful because of the children that he's given me. Other times I'm here and I just feel incredibly depressed and grief-stricken. I feel brokenhearted as we sing about the love of God and I think about all the people that I love that aren't here because they don't believe in God. I think about how desperate they are for hope. That breaks my heart. Other times I'm worshiping and I don't feel anything because I'm distracted or tired. The kids woke me up early. I'm not into it at all. I feel a whole host of different emotions in the midst of worship and that is okay, Because great worship is not about reaching a particular emotional state. It is about choosing to declare how great God is, whether you feel like it or not. That's what made David's worship so great. All kinds of different emotions. And yet in the midst of all of those different emotions, he came to God in worship. He gave his emotions to God. He didn't try to suppress them. He was honest with God. God knows how he's feeling. So God, here it is. I'm feeling really angry, but I bring this emotion to you and I invite you to invade my heart, invade my mind, and use this emotion to draw me closer to you. That's what great worship looks like. And I hope that this is gonna be freeing for some of you. Because some of you are are like me. A number of years ago, before I studied this biblically, I would go to breakaway as a student and I would feel guilty. I feel guilty because I look around and I see all these people totally into it. They're excited. They're joyful. Hands are up. They're so excited to worship God. And I'm not feeling any of that. So I felt guilty and I felt like God must really be disappointed with me. No, he's not. Because God's not looking for a particular emotional state. He's looking for, for your willingness, your choice to say, God, I'm not feeling it, but I declare to you, you are worthy. You are worthy of my praise no matter how I feel in this moment. So if we're worshiping and you're struggling emotionally, you're struggling with whatever the emotion may be, anger, fear, apathy, distraction, what God wants you to do in that moment is not give up. Keep worshiping, keep participating, and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to meet you in the midst of this emotion, to invade your heart and your mind and use both your joy and your pain to reveal more of himself to you. Success of our worship is about our choice. It's not about our emotions. Our choice to declare the greatness of God no matter how we feel. Okay, so first thing to clear up. Worship is not always joyful. Second thing to clear up. Worship is not a performance. 
Worship is not a performance. In the Old Testament, you did have professional worship leaders. They were called the Levites. They led, but, but when they led, all of Israel participated. Everyone had a job to do in the midst of, of that worship. In the New Testament, you don't even see worship leaders. You don't see bands. There's not a whole lot about singing in worship, but the most important passage, I think, in the New Testament about, about singing together in worship is Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing and making melody. Do you notice this command is not just addressed to the worship leaders or the band? Not just addressed to the professionals, it's to all of us. Every single believer is called to sing. It's called to make melody with our heart. That's, that's worship. It requires participation. We all must be engaged in it. Worship, biblically, is, is not a spectator sport where you watch the professionals worship for you. Worship isn't passive. No one else can worship for you. The only way, by definition, for you to worship is for you to declare the great worth of God. No one can do that for you. So, so what does that mean, practically speaking? If worship is, is not a performance, a couple things that it means. First and most obvious, you must sing. When we get together, you got to sing. You notice Ephesians 5, there's no escape clause. It does not say singing and making melody unless you can't hold a tune. <laughs> there's no excuse. There's no, no escape clause given. No matter whether you can sing or not, no matter whether you have a great voice or a poor voice, you are commanded by God to sing and participate because that's what worship requires. You cannot spectate. You must participate for it to be worship. Now, if you say, but Blake, I have a really bad voice. Well, I, I do too. Not good at singing at all. We don't get an excuse because let's think about who gave us our really bad voices. Who, who is it that made this voice box in, in this ear that can't hold a tune? Well, it's God. And so when I sing and I drop a note, God's not surprised and he's not disappointed <laughs> because he made it. This is his and so he gave me the voice box I said, and he gave me the really clear command in Ephesians 5 saying, sing, and so I must sing. The beautiful thing is that that means that God is honored when you drop a note. God is honored when you belt it out and you don't know what you're doing. He says, I delight in that because I made that. That is mine, and I want to hear it. And so worship requires our active participation, and that means when we gather to sing, we all sing. And if you worry about what people around you are going to think when you drop a note, don't worry about that. That's their problem, not your problem. Because this isn't a performance. It's about all of us gathering together to declare how worthy God is. That's the first practical thing. You've got to sing. You've got to sing. Second, it doesn't matter if you enjoy the music. This one's hard for us. So we all have strong preferences when it comes to worship. Some of you like Chris Tomlin, some of you like hymns, some of you like acapella, some of you like gospel choir. Me, I'm an old school hymn guy. I would prefer no instruments, just a hundred men singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I'll take that every day of the week. I love that. That's my preference. And when our preferences aren't met on Sunday morning, that can leave us feeling frustrated or disappointed. We're having a, a hard time engaging. And, and we leave on Sunday morning and a friend asks us, so how was worship this morning? And we say, well, I didn't get much out of it. Well, that statement, I didn't get much out of it, that reveals that we're looking at worship as a performance. It reveals that we're missing the point. If this was a U2 concert and you paid $200 to be here, you better get something out of it because that's entertainment. 
That's about you receiving something that you enjoy. But this is not a performance. It does not matter whether you enjoy it. It matters that God enjoys it because this is about him, not about us. And it does not matter what you get out of it. It matters what he gets out of it because it's about him, not about us. So it does not matter whether we enjoy the worship or not. It's not about our entertainment. It's about God being delighted and pleased with our declaration of his worth. So practically speaking, what do you do if you're in here and the music is not quite what you were hoping for? It's not the song that you were hoping to sing. It's not the worship leader you were looking for. It's a little too loud or a little too soft. Whatever it might be, you're just at the moment, you're not enjoying it, you're not feeling it. It's it's not what you were hoping for. What do you do in that moment? Will you go to the Lord in prayer? And you say, God, please, right now, meet me here and help me to remember and believe that this is not about me, that this is about you, that my enjoyment doesn't matter, that what matters is you, your enjoyment, your delight. Please help me to worship you. Even right now when I'm not enjoying this song, help me to fully engage because you are worthy of my worship whether I enjoy it or not. Worship is not a performance. That's the second thing to clear up. Third thing to clear up, common misconception. Worship is, is not just singing. In Isaiah 29, God was frustrated with his people, with the Israelites. He's pretty angry, and he tells them why. Chapter 29, verse 13, God says, This people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. The Israelites knew the right words to sing. They knew the songs by heart. They knew all the right things to do, but they didn't mean any of it. It was just lip service to God. They just went through the motions of worship, and God's saying that doesn't count. That's not worship if you don't mean it. It's not worship if it's just ceremony, ritual, lip service. Your mind, your heart must be engaged. That's the measure of authentic worship, that your mind and your heart are fully engaged in what you are saying. You mean the words that are coming out of your mouth. You're engaged in it. And so what that means for us is that if we are in the middle of singing a song about how great God is and yet we are thinking about the Aggies next game, it's not worship. It's not worship to just sing the right songs. You've got to mean it. You've got to be thinking about it. You've got to be engaged in it. Now some of you are feeling pretty guilty right now because you were thinking about something else during worship. So what do you do? Well, God doesn't want you to just feel guilty. How do you engage your heart and your mind in this task of worship, declaring how great God is if your mind is wandering, if you're feeling distracted? How do you engage? Well, that's where your body comes into play. That's where your body is is a help to you, is an aid to you. It's interesting if you read all the way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and you ask yourself what is going on with people's bodies as they worship, you will be amazed to see how active they were. Worship in the Bible is incredibly kinesthetic. They're raising their hands, they're dropping their hands, they're standing, they're sitting, they're bowing, they're kneeling, they're dancing, they're skipping, they're doing all kinds of things in the Bible in worship because they understood that that the body and the spirit are united. What you do with one affects the other. So if you want to focus your mind and your heart, use your body to help you engage. And so they were moving all over the place. Worship biblically was a workout. I'm sure their their hearts were beating hard as they were worshiped because they're using their bodies to engage with the Lord. So practically speaking, I would encourage you, here in this place when we worship, I would encourage you to use your body to help you engage. For some of you, that means if you're feeling distracted in the middle of a song, what you need to do is get your hands up. 
because that, that helps you to wake up. It helps you to be alert. Now, if you can only go halfway, that's okay. Three quarters is fine. All the way up, whatever you want to do, get, get your hands up. That will engage you in worship. It will help you to wake up and pay attention. Now, for some of you, that's going to feel weird because you're not really expressive. Maybe you, you grew up in a, in a really uh, conservative environment, really restrained, and, and, and it feels a little odd to you. I want you to feel some freedom this morning. Biblically speaking, worship is much more often this than this. So this is extremely biblical. Whether you feel it or not, God loves this. He loves you bodily engaged, so you need to feel freedom to raise your hands. And if you worry about what will my neighbor think if my hands go up, it doesn't matter. Who cares what they think about it because worship's not about them. It's about God. So you need to do whatever it takes to engage your heart and your mind in worship. So for some of you, that's hands up. For others, you you need to go down. You need to sit down. Middle of worship, everybody else is standing. You can sit. You need to sit and, and maybe you're singing or maybe you're praying. Maybe you sit on your chair and you bow your head and you spend a few moments praying for God to help you to wake up and and engage, that God would would meet you here and help you to to really sing about how great he is. Pray for the people around you that they would really engage in worship. And for others of you, you need to go even further down. You need need to bow. I, I don't know if you know this, but in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for worship, both two words, they both mean to bow. Because this was worship in the Old and New Testament. It was usually done on the knees. Most common posture in worship was, was on the knees, maybe on the face as well, all the way down prostrate before God. But typically you're on your knees because this shows reverence. When you're on your knees, you feel small and God feels big. And, and that's what worship is designed to do, make you feel small and God feel big. So here in this place, you can get on your knees. Not gonna freak anybody out. Get on your knees in your row. Get in the aisle if you need to. Get on your knees. It helps you to to feel a sense of humility before our really big God, but also when you're on your knees, it's really hard to be distracted. Really helps you to wake up and pay attention. And so I encourage you, if you're having a hard time engaging your heart and mind, it means you probably need to move your body. You need to be actively engaged with your body that will help draw your heart and your mind, that'll help you wake up and focus on how great the Lord is. So worship, it's not just enough to sing the right words. You gotta mean it. You gotta engage your heart and your mind in worship. Now I wanna end this morning by giving you a few practical tips on how to get better at worship. How do you grow as a worshiper? God does want you to grow in worship. Once you get better at it, how do I know that? Because um, I can actually tell you what God's plan is for your life. Now, not in the immediate future, not here on earth, but for the rest of your life, for all eternity, God's plan for you is very simple. You're going to worship. That's what we'll do in heaven. You're not going to do any evangelism, won't be any need, and and you're not going to pray because God will be right there, and you're not going to read the Bible because you got God. All you're going to (laughs) do is worship. that's That's what eternity will be, is declaring the greatness of God in word and song and thought and deed. So if our eternal job description is worship, if that's the most important thing for God for all of eternity, then we need to be growing in worship in this life. We need to be getting better as worshipers now. And so I want to give you a few practical tips to help you get better at worship. How to improve your worship of the Lord first is to learn. 
to learn about the one we worship. In John 4, 23, Jesus said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Spirit, that's what we talked about earlier, that you're, you're engaged in it. It's not just lip service. It's your spirit engaging with God's spirit. What I want to focus on is the word truth. For worship to count, for worship to honor God, it must be founded upon truth. You gotta sing truth, you gotta speak truth, you gotta think truth about the one true God. You realize there's lots of people in this world who are worshiping. Lots of people who are worshiping but not in truth. So you you, you have Muslims who are worshiping, you have Hindus who are worshiping, you have Jews who are worshiping and they're devout in their worship, they're passionate They're engaged, they're dedicated to their worship and yet this worship does not honor God at all. Why? Because it is not built on truth. They're worshiping a false God or they're worshiping false ideas about God and that does not honor God. Biblical worship is worship that's built on truth. And that truth begins with truth about Jesus. The ultimate problem for Muslims and Hindus and Jews is that they are trying to approach God, but not through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The only way to come to God in worship is to come through his son, Jesus Christ. Worship begins with the belief that Jesus is the son of God, he died for your sins, he rose from the dead so that you could have life. Your worship does not honor God unless it comes through the belief that Jesus is your savior. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our savior, the way that we grow in worship is to learn more about the God we are worshiping. We discover more truth about God. We learn more about his character and his attributes and his works. So very practically, I would encourage you, if you want to grow your worship this spring, I would encourage you to do something that will teach you more about God. So for some of you, that may be reading a portion of the Bible that you haven't read before or you haven't read in a long time. A lot of us, that's Old Testament. So turn to the Old Testament, read a, a chapter a day, and as, as you're reading that, that chapter of the Old Testament, ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? So you're learning more about God. For others of you, you need to join a small group where you're learning more about God with other people. For others of you, if, if you'd like a book outside of the Bible to learn more about God, the best that I can recommend is by a guy named A.W. Tozer. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. The knowledge of the holy, short, divided up into chapters. Each chapter is about an attribute, a characteristic of your God. It'll really drive your worship deeper. One of the most fundamental books in my Christian walk. I read it early on in my faith, and it taught me about the God that I worship. Okay, so A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. Learn more about the one you worship, and it will drive your worship deeper, because worship is built on truth. Second practical piece of advice I'd give you is to root out sin, we said how both in the Old and New Testaments, the, the typical word for worship is, is to bow down. That's the posture that they're getting in, to bow down. And, and when you bow down before someone, that is an act of submission. You're submitting your life, your service, your obedience to the one in front of whom you're, you're bowing. That's why it's actually, because worship is always about bowing, submitting. It's almost impossible in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to distinguish between the concept of worship and submission and obedience. 
You can't pull them apart. They go hand in hand. It's the same word is used for bow and worship. What that means is, biblically speaking, you cannot worship a God you will not obey. It's simply impossible. If you will not obey God in every area of your life, you cannot worship God in any area of your life. If you are walking in disobedience, if you're living in unconfessed sin Monday through Saturday, then your Sunday worship doesn't count. It's just empty words. It's meaningless. Because by definition, you cannot worship a God you will not obey. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. None of us are. We all sin. The key is that when we sin, we confess that sin to God. We acknowledge that it's wrong. We repent of it. We ask God, please help me to never do that again. I recommit myself to walk with you. If we'll confess and repent, then God cleanses us of our, of our sin and receives our worship. And so if there is some area of your life where you have been giving into sin and temptation and you just surrendered, you just, I'm going to live with that sin. I'm done trying to fight it. I just, I'm not going to try to resist it anymore. You got to understand, you are never going to be able to worship God until you get right in that area of your life. You got to be willing to say, God, I don't know how to fight this, but I, I recommit myself to fight this thing that I know is wrong. Please fill me with your spirit. Please give me strength to walk in righteousness and truth. Confess and repent of your sin so that you can grow in worship. That's my second piece of practical advice. Third piece of practical advice is to practice. Practice worship throughout the week. A.W. Tozer, a guy I mentioned earlier, said if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him one day a week. That's exactly right. Biblically, to worship God when we gather together in community requires that we learn to worship God when we're alone at home. That's how the Jews did it. They would gather together on the Sabbath to worship as a community, but that communal worship was fed by worshiping at home every day. Every day of the week, they would gather privately, just individually before the Lord to read his word. They would gather with their family, with their kids. That was a really big deal in the Old Testament. They'd get their kids together and they'd talk about the great things God had done. So every day, they're practicing worship privately and with their family and that would lead to great worship when they gathered together on the Sabbath. And that's how it's meant to work for us. You can't worship God well on Sunday if you haven't been worshiping God well all week. So if you want to grow in your worship, you need to make sure that worship is a part of every day. Every day you're waking up and you're giving thanks to God. Every day you're, you're looking for other believers, maybe your family, maybe roommates, who you can tell about how good God is, how great God is. You're encouraging one another. Parents, we should be doing this with our kids, gathering together to talk about the goodness of God. You're practicing worship as a daily habit, and that will empower your worship when we gather together on Sunday mornings. To practice. Worship is something you get better at through practice, like most things in life. This morning, we're going to end by practicing worship together. Phil, if you want to come up, band's going to come back up. We're going to take some time to respond to the Lord in worship. I've asked Phil to lead us one contemporary song and then one hymn, so we get a little variety together. And, and I remind you that you have freedom to do whatever you would like with your body in this worship, hands up, hands halfway, sitting, bowing, standing, kneeling, whatever it takes to engage your heart and your mind in this worship. That's what I I want you to do. Uh, I remind you the key here as we worship is not just to sing the words, but to think about the words. You got to mean it. You got to believe what you're saying. And so think about the words that are on the screen. And finally, I would remind you that what this moment of worship is about is not about how much you enjoy it. Phil's great. The band is great. We don't care how much you enjoy their music. What matters is not 
our enjoyment. It's, it's not what we think of the style. What matters is that glory goes to God, that God is pleased by this time. What matters is that we declare to God, to ourselves, to one another, how worthy God is, how great he is. So let's join together as a family to sing about how great our Father is.